Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast, and indeed, welcome back for 2018. I'm your host, Dave McRae, from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and I know Gemma, Charlotte, Dirk and I are all looking forward to bringing you another bumper year of fortnightly in-depth chats with leading experts across a range of political and social issues. And to kick the year off, today we'll be discussing prosecutions for pornography offences in Indonesia. It's a topic that's been in the news in Indonesia, not so much because of any commercial pornographer being hauled before the courts. Instead, the issue has grabbed public attention on account of screenshots of a salacious WhatsApp chat between Islamic Defenders Front leader Rizik Shihab and one of Rizik's followers, Firza Hussein. Police have made Firza a suspect under Indonesia's pornography law on account of the screenshots, while Rizik has fled to Saudi Arabia to avoid questioning. To discuss this case, and the broader question of how and why prohibitions on pornography are applied in Indonesia, we're joined today by Dr. Helen Palsaka, Deputy Director of the Centre for Indonesian Islam, Law and Society, or SILIS, here at the University of Melbourne, who has been researching and writing on this area for some years now. Helen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, before we get to this Rizik Shihab and Firza case, perhaps I could start by asking, when did Indonesia introduce prohibitions on pornography and what was the context at the time? So from the beginning of independence, when the Indonesian Criminal Code was introduced, it was based on the Dutch Criminal Code and it had an article on pornography and that said basically that everyone who broadcasts, displays or posts publicly writing pictures or things which are known to have contents which violate morality could incur a prison sentence. Um, the difficulty of this was that it wasn't being properly enforced. Okay, and, and why was that? Because there was a lot of corruption within the police force and also, I suspect, insufficient time to enforce the article. The desire for a pornography law then arose, I think, mainly out of a desire to institute Islamic norms. And this began in about 2006, and it was much discussed law. So the proponents of the law argued that it would save the younger generation from immorality, those against the law said, well, we already have an article that's quite adequate within the criminal code and it should just be enforced properly. There were worries too in the discussion of the pornography bill that it was reaching far and wide into what were called porno acts. So these would include things like lewd dancing or public affections which were unspecified, so it, the people were worried, for example, it might be if a husband and wife kissed at the airport that they could technically be violating the law. So when the law was passed, which was in 2008, it still seemed to be too wide. So basically you're saying the criminal code since independence has had this prohibition on pornography that in practice was not applied um, after a two-year debate, you ended up with a new law prescribing pornography, the 2008 Pornography Bill. But I understand for your research, there's also another piece of legislation that also prohibits pornography. What What is that third? So in the same year, also in 2008, but earlier in the year, 
there was another law passed, which was the Information and Electronic Transactions Law. This law covered a number of electronic transactions, but that did also include pornography. Now, the definition in this law, even though it was passed in the same year as the pornography law, the definition of pornography is different in this law to the one that's in the pornography law. It's much more similar to the definition in the criminal code. Whereas the pornography law defines pornography as pictures, sketches, illustrations, photos, writing, and importantly, voice, sound, moving pictures, animations, cartoons, conversation, movements, or other forms and varieties of media, and or performances in public, which contain obscenity or sexual exploitation, which violate the moral norms in society. So the definition is fairly loose and It does actually, even though the porno action was taken out of the law, it can still be interpreted when you've got things like movements and performances in public. It can still be interpreted as porno action. Okay, so if I'm understanding you, the pornography law itself has a much broader definition of pornography than either what was in the criminal code passed down by the Dutch or what was enacted in this information electronic transactions law. Could you take us through some of the other key differences between these three pieces of legislation that can be used to prohibit and prosecute pornography in Indonesia? So one of the very big differences with the pornography law versus the criminal code is the sanctions. So both the financial and also the prison sanctions. So Under the criminal code, the maximum sanction would have been a year and six months. Whereas under the pornography law, producing, making, importing, exporting, buying or selling pornography can be between six months to 12 years. Making a service available for pornography, this is presumably internet or television, is again between six months or 10 years. Downloading or loaning pornography has a maximum of four years and funding or facilitating pornographic acts has between two to 15 years. The fines also can be absolutely astronomical. So the first one, making, producing, importing pornography can go up to 821000 Australian dollars. The next one can be between thirty-four to $410,000. So they're very high fines. One of the reasons for introducing the law may also have been that because the criminal code has to be revised as a whole, people are introducing laws to make up for deficiencies. So it's not possible just to change little bits of the criminal code very easily. But in speaking to some of the Islamic groups, one of the things that they said was the reason they like to have a specific pornography law was to highlight it as an offence. So it was a symbolic law as much as it was one to actually stamp out pornography. Did enacting a pornography law and then this information and electronic transactions law that also had prohibitions on pornography then lead to 
immediate prosecutions? And I guess what were some of the early cases that we saw in the application of these laws? Well, interestingly, the lead up to passing the pornography law led to a prosecution. So the focus, while the, while the bill was being debated, there was Erwin Anada from Playboy, uh, who was prosecuted but under the criminal code. This was the Indonesian version of Playboy magazine that was rather less salacious than its international... It had no nudes at all, and uh, Erwin Anada had actually discussed with the press council prior to producing the magazine. But for Islamic groups, Playboy was seen as a symbol. So a lot of these laws and what's being uh, attacked is is as much symbolic as the actual acts or items that are being banned. Okay, so the editor of Playboy Indonesia was prosecuted under the criminal code at the, at the time the pro- pornography law was being discussed. Yes. Shortly after the pornography law was passed, there were probably two in the very early days. There were a number of tabletop dancers uh, who were prosecuted under the law. One of these was in Bandung, where the mayor of Bandung was wanting to prove that Bandung was becoming a righteous town and he accompanied the police on the raid on this particular bar, which is a rather unusual act for a mayor. And a number of the dancers were underage dancers. So they still received prison sentences, even though they weren't yet 18. Far from protecting children, therefore, Indonesia has been prosecuting children for involvement in pornographic uh, acts. So you had these early cases where it was tabletop dancers who were being prosecuted. Um, in your latest research, as far as I understand, you're focusing on prosecutions of prominent individuals, including the lead singer of one of Indonesia's more famous boy bands, Peter Pan, Ariel. Did this come soon after the law was enacted as well, or was it some time before you started seeing celebrities or public figures prosecuted under this pornography legislation? The Ariel Peter Pan case was fairly soon after the pornography law was enacted, yes. And what was the nature of that case? So what had happened prior to the pornography law being passed, Ariel and two of his girlfriends in separate incidences had filmed their romantic engagement, (laughs) sexual engagement, And this was in itself acceptable under the pornography law because you are allowed to produce homemade pornography for your own personal use. So this was saved on Ariel's home computer. His sound engineer, Rejoy, came to his house. It was his job to back up anything that Ariel had recorded and to make a copy of it and put it on both his office computer and his home computer. He did this and didn't realise that he had copied the personal pornography that uh, had been made. Later on, Rejoy discovered this file in the office and uh, rang up Ariel. Ariel said, please delete it, which he did. But what he forgot when he got home was to delete 
the copy that was accidentally on Rejoy's home computer. Somehow, the copy that remained on Rejoy's computer was then uploaded onto the internet. Now, it's suspected that this was his cousin and his friend. So his cousin was using Rejoy's computer. He admits that he found the files on the computer and made a copy of them. He denies uploading it onto the internet. What is interesting in the court case is that the court didn't investigate Rejoy's cousin at all. He was just called briefly as a witness. Mm, sure. So, I mean, if we were to recap the case so far, basically you've got a couple of sex tapes made that as long as they don't become public is perfectly within the law. They then did become public. An investigation was launched. Who gets charged under under those sort of circumstances? So, officially, under the law, who should have got charged was the person or people who uploaded it onto the internet because it was at that point that it was public. But who actually ended up in prison was Ariel and Rejoy. And the reason that they were told that they were being imprisoned was that they had been careless in the storage of the files. Is carelessness an offence? Under... Carelessness is not an offence, which is what makes it rather odd. So with many of these cases, it seems that, that the people who are actually in the wrong are not being charged, but the people who technically have done nothing that's illegal, apart from being careless, are being charged. Sure, sure. Now, I mean, in your research, you draw a link between this Ariel Peter Pan case and the recent investigation of the head of the Islamic Defenders Fund, Rizik Shihab, and his female follower, Fierza. Um, What is it that, that links these two cases together? So in the case of Habib Rizik Shihab and Fierza, it's a very similar situation in that a third party has taken their salacious conversation which they recorded themselves, taken it from their mobile phones and uploaded it onto the internet. If I understand correctly, this is a WhatsApp conversation between the two of them. Could you explain exactly what this case pertains to? So they had a WhatsApp conversation. It's still not been 100% identified that it was Rizik Shihab. He, of course, denies, as does Fierza, that it's them. But... So we have to say the alleged conversation, I think, in this case. It was salacious. They were making suggestions of what they would like to do together. And, yes, referring to sexual acts, there were also pictures exchanged between the two of them. So this is presumably content that, if they themselves had made it public, would see them fall foul of the pornography law and perhaps the information and electronic transactions law, but you're saying that's not the allegation in this case that it was them who had distributed it? They were certainly not distributing it. So the suspicion is that somebody got hold of Rizik Shihab's mobile phone and uploaded it onto the internet. Okay, so under those circumstances, uh, Rizik and Fears are likely to face charges, do you think? So there have been suggestions the prosecution would like to charge them. Rizik has, however, gone to the Middle East and is hanging out there. So he can't. nothing can happen to him while he's out of the country. 
Okay, so these charges presumably would again hinge on this idea of carelessness, that having produced the content, not enough care was taken to prevent it coming into the public domain. If that's what they use, given that such flimsy reasons are given, they may find something else. But that would be if they followed on the Ariel Peter Pan case, uh, that would be exactly what they'd use. Okay. And I mean, where are proceedings against Rizik and Fierza up to at present? So they have been summonsed. I understand that Fierza is in prison at the moment anyway on a different charge, but I don't think that charges have been formally laid, but they've certainly been summoned for interviews. Now, I mean, before this case arose, Rizik Shihab was prominently involved in the series of protests against, at the time, the incumbent Jakarta governor, Ahok. And, I mean, the case against him has been widely interpreted within Indonesia as a politically motivated prosecution targeting a, a prominent critic of the government. Does this political aspect to the case set it apart from other pornography prosecutions? I think one of the things in most of the porn, pornography prosecutions is that somebody wants to make an example of somebody else. So it's not that there is systematic searching through people's mobile phones or computers to find if they have any pornography there. It's if somebody doesn't like something that somebody's done. So in Ariel's case, I would say that the Islamic Defenders Front didn't like the fact that he was having sex out of wedlock Mm. and saw the opportunity to make an example of him. Conversely, where you have somebody who is heavily against pornography and then you find salacious conversations on their mobile phones... I would say the opposition to Rizik is wanting to make an example of him. Sure, sure. So you could say at some level the typical pornography prosecution in Indonesia is in fact politically motivated. I think so. And if you look at the tabletop dances where you had the mayor from Bandung going on the raid, having all the news media there to make an example. So most of the prosecutions, I would say, are, are for political purposes. Where they're celebrities, it's for their actual name. In the case of the tabletop dancers, uh, it was to make media, to show them as an example, and to make people nervous about doing these activities. So given these cases typically have a political element, how have we seen the hardline or conservative Islamic constituency respond to the Rizik prosecution? So they have supported Rizik and said that he's being persecuted. He, of course, is claiming complete innocence. He's still publicly aligned with FPE. And at one rally recently, he spoke on the phone and was recorded out through a broadcasting machine, (laughs) Mm. a a loudspeaker. (laughs) So they are still standing behind him and he is still claiming his innocence. He's claiming he's being persecuted by the Jokowi government. Okay, so the sorts of groups that would normally push for pornography prosecutions are in fact seeing this particular case as entirely illegitimate. Yes, and this is not uncommon because with the case of Arifinto, 
the politician who was found looking at pornography on his computer. He was discovered by a journalist who just happened to be there and filmed him looking at the pornography. This was during a session of parliament. A session of parliament. So he was clearly in the wrong. He had clearly broken the law. But PKS, the Islamic Party, when it was one of their own viewing the pornography, said that the people who distributed the pornography rather than those who saved it should be punished. And in fact, it's clearly against the law to save the pornography on your computer. So they very much defend their own when their own are up on charges. What about broader societal attitudes to the RISIC prosecution? Do you have any sense of where other constituencies stand on this case? So I think for those who were against the introduction of the pornography law, there's a certain delight in seeing RISIC suffering. Whether that means that he should be charged under the pornography law is a completely different question, I think. Now, this Rizik case has obviously been very high profile and has brought this whole issue of prohibitions on pornography back into public debate. But you've already mentioned a few other cases that have cropped up over time. Uh, In practice, how often do we see people prosecuted for pornography offences in Indonesia? It's actually very rare. What is much more common, and the politician who I just mentioned, Arefinto, he had no charges brought against him. So he did resign from the party, but the police didn't investigate his case and nothing was brought against him. So what is much more common with the use of the pornography law are media reports. And often it doesn't go any further than a media report. And you hunt to see whether charges were laid and very often it seems charges haven't been laid. That was also the case under some of the high profile uh, cases under the criminal code. So we had one that was brought, Erwin Anada from Playboy, but the other two cases where charges were laid, they weren't continued through with. Do you see a pattern at all, I guess, when you have these media scandals? Is there a systematic pattern of who does get prosecuted and whose case just stops in its tracks? I don't think there's a systematic pattern. I think it's much more with a particular case, whether there are certain people who are pushing the case and being desperate that people will get charged. So in the case of Ariel Peter Pan, the Islamic Defenders Front uh, was very keen to see the prosecution and I think their enthusiasm pushed the criminal justice system to make sure that it went through. I think sometimes police have a lot on their books and unless somebody's pushing to make sure that it gets fully investigated and goes through, there just isn't the time or the will to carry on. And that would apply both to cases where it's public figures being prosecuted or investigated and also to the uh, cases you've mentioned of erotic dancers and the like? Yes, I think it's both the high profile but also the lower cases where this can happen. One case in recent times has been last year, 2017, where there were a number of raids by police on gay saunas and a large number of men were taken into custody. Of these, 
about 10 in each case were charged and we've seen the first court cases come through early this year with 10 men receiving two years imprisonment each. Okay, and so this would reflect that under the kind of broader moral panic about LGBT people that we've had in Indonesia over the past year, there would be sufficient pressure to encourage police and prosecutors to take that case all the way to its conclusion. So we're more typically seeing these pornography laws applied to live entertainment venues, to celebrity cases around sort of leaked sex tapes or other salacious material, rather than, say, the commercial distribution of pornographic images and, and that sort of thing. There's been very little on the commercial distribution, as as happened under the criminal code. So the pornography law has done almost nothing to wipe out commercial distribution of pornography. And, I mean, this seems, in a situation where you're describing there actually aren't that many prosecutions, either under the criminal code, the pornography law, or the internet and electronic transactions law, seems very active legislating on on an area of law that isn't much applied uh, in a in a situation where the Indonesian parliament the DPR in general doesn't pass that many laws um does this reflect the influence of these hardline groups on the on the legislative agenda or why do you think we do see three different laws that regulate pornography i think it definitely reflects the power of the hardline push. And round the time that the pornography bill was being discussed, there were huge demonstrations. In fact, people on both sides, so those who were concerned about the introduction of the pornography law, worried, for example, about its effect on art, on performance, on regional costumes. So there was an immense debate around the pornography law, and it was definitely are fighting out between the more progressive and the more hardline in society. On the whole, the religious minorities were also against the pornography laws. So even those who might be, say, at the more extreme end of Christianity, for example, rarely ever would align with the hardline Islamic group. Okay. And I mean, have those sort of concerns of, a, I guess, a chilling effect on artistic expression or regional costumes being borne out in practice? Not so much. So under the criminal code, there was one art exhibition which involved a soapy star, uh, Pink Swing Park, and FPE, the Islamic Defenders Front, came charging in. Charges eventually were just petered out. So there wasn't a court case or anything like that. So I think that was part of the nervousness that this could happen, but there's been very little action on artwork. I think one of the main reasons that Pink Swing Park was was targeted was because it was a soapy star. I think the reality is that FPE does not tend to go to art exhibitions, uh, so they rarely ever know what's going on. Beyond these legislative prohibitions on pornography, of course, uh, recently we've seen a decision handed down in this constitutional court case in Indonesia where you had a conservative group seeking to, as far as I understand, extend prohibitions on adultery to cover all same-sex or extramarital relations. Are those sort of pushes in the constitutional court for, I guess, a more conservative set of 
prohibitions on on sexual behavior part and parcel of the same phenomenon as this anti-pornography legislation or, or are they really quite different? I think they're very similar. So the the group that brought it was the Family Love Alliance, which was a loose coalition mainly of hardline Islamic academics. And so they were wanting to extend the definitions of rape to include male-to-male rape, of adultery, and also because adultery at the moment is only if somebody is married. So it's not sex outside of marriage between two unmarried or two divorced people. And they also wanted at the moment the clause that deals with homosexuals is about underage sex. So they wanted to bring that to include all homosexual sex. And the idea, again, is to enforce in law Islamic values so that they apply to the whole of society rather than as the other groups might feel that morality is a personal issue. So that's really the debate is, is morality a personal issue or should it be enforced in the law? And I mean, can we see the Constitutional Court's rejection of the case as any direct ruling on that or or did they simply elide the issue in their judgment? So I think what has happened in the Constitutional Court is in some ways an accident of which judges are in the Constitutional Court at the moment. So prior to this, Patrialis Akbar had spoken out in favour of changing these clauses, but he was dismissed on corruption charges. And while he was very much against the idea of sex outside of marriage, it was discovered in the process of his case that one of the reasons he was up for corruption was because he was keeping a mistress on the side. So the person who replaced him, so the vote was five against four. It had been rumoured that it was going to be three against six. So five rejecting the case, four with dissenting opinions in support of the applicants. That's right. Yeah. So if Patrialis Akbar had have been there, it's possible that the decision would have been different. The person who replaced him, Saldi Isra, voted against the petition, in other words, against changing the law. So it very much depends on which judges are in the constitutional court as to what the decision will be. It's interesting when you look at the judges, the judges who were appointed by the DPR, the legislature, Anwar Usman, Arif Hidayat and Wahinuddin, were all people who voted in favour of the changes. So we see if we look at the judges in different groups, we see quite a pattern emerging of who voted before and who voted against. So more hardline, what I'm saying is that more hardline judges seem to have been appointed by the DPR than by other means. So the other judges have been appointed by the president, either by Jokowi or by SBA, Susilo Bambangyudoyono, or by the Supreme Court. We also have amongst those judges three who are non-Muslim, and they all voted against the changes. Now, you mentioned 
at the time of the enactment of anti-pornography legislation, you had quite vocal campaigns both in support of the legislation and uh, opposing the, the various prohibitions that, that the law was going to bring into place. What have we seen over the nine years or so since the legislation has been enacted? Has that sort of opposition continued or has the public largely got on board with pornography prosecutions? Well, what we have to remember is there are actually very few prosecutions. Mm. So in the case of Ariel, Ariel's supporters were vocal but calm. The opposition, so the FPE group was busy throwing rotten tomatoes and eggs. Ariel's supporters were well-behaved, but they were certainly there and supporting him. I think when we saw the prosecution of the erotic dancers, there doesn't seem to have been much of a presence of anybody. They just seem to have been quietly put into prison. So I think we would see much more if there were a lot more trials, because it's at the trial stage that people will be coming out. Whereas what we see is sometimes suggestions that there have been charges, but then when you try and follow up through the court cases, they just seem to have disappeared into nothing. Okay, so outside of these high-profile prosecutions, this is a largely forgotten piece of legislation. I wouldn't say that it's forgotten, but I'd say there's very little chance to mobilise because there's not anything in particular to mobilise against. Although you did see, for example, two petitions going to the Constitutional Court to try and modify the pornography law and one petition to make it more extreme and all of those petitions were rejected by the Constitutional Court. So there was that attempt earlier on. Looking to the future, and of course we still wait to see what the outcome will be in this Rizik Shihab case and, and also for Fiza Hussein. What do you see as the prospects for prohibitions on pornography in Indonesia? Would you anticipate they will sort of continue to be seldom used but stay on the books or, or might we see a, a change in their application? In the near future, I don't think there will be any changes. I think it will continue on if people report case to the police, they might act on it or they might half-heartedly act on it or they might fulsomely act on it. So it's very much up to reporting of pornography cases. I think it'd be very difficult to get the law off the books at this point, particularly given the challenge to the Constitutional Court failed. Mm. So that would have been the point at which the law could have been taken off the books. In terms of the sex outside of marriage, that is still not finished because the criminal code is currently being revised. It's been being revised for many, many years, so it's unsure when that will come in, but it's certainly these changes are on the books for the criminal code, the new criminal code, if and when it comes in. So there will be another debate around that time, and it's possible that, that they may get passed at that point in time. So the DPR could enact the same changes that these conservative academics were unable to achieve through their constitutional court case? They could exactly, yes. And I mean, finally, 
I guess as a consequence of these anti-AHOC protests, we've seen survey data that overall societal support for groups like FPI has significantly increased. Could this lead to a more active push for use of pornography legislation by FPI or their supporters, for instance? I think it very much depends on what FPI's agenda is at a particular time. So shortly after the pornography cases, for example, FPI got very involved in acting against religious sects, so groups like Ahmadiyya. And at that point, they seemed to lose interest in pursuing pornography cases. So what it will depend on is what their particular agenda is at the time. They can't be everywhere doing everything, so they do quite strategically choose where they'll put their action. And I think that remains to be seen, whether they choose pornography as one of their actions. I would imagine that given Rizik's situation, they might lie low on pursuing pornography at least for a little while. Indeed, indeed. Helen, there's a lot more could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for joining us today to share your insights and indeed to kick off the podcast for 2018. Thanks very much, Dave. That was Dr. Helen Palsaka, Deputy Director of the Centre for Indonesian Islam Law and Society, or SILIS, in the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne. Talking Indonesia will return on the 1st of February with Dr. Gemma Purdy. In the meantime, as always, you can access the entire archive on the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, via iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.